0: I'm Sam, and I recently got told that I look like Bubbles
1: from the Trailer Park Boys. And I'm Max. I once got told that I look like any lesbian. Not the ones you see in films, no. More of the chip on their shoulder, militant, maybe run-for-a-political-party type. So, a militant lesbian. And a goggled-eyed
0: hillbilly. Yeah. Welcome to the Son of Zorro podcast. a pretty clear picture in your mind of who we are, you're probably thinking, why are just another two guys doing just another podcast? Well, like most good things do, it started with a couple of mates chatting shit in a pub and, well, I was sat there and some of my favourite stories that I would hear, pint in hand, were of the life of Max's dad. And it was wanting to
1: keep these anecdotes out there that we decided to start the podcast. So these are a collection of his stories, and we're just wanting to keep them alive. Like all good journalism, it's just as good now as it was then. And ultimately, this podcast is a salute to my old man, Zorro, as he was known. There'll also be our take
0: on a few tales from music, film, art, bit of culture, and any
1: other interesting tidbits that we can throw in for good measure. Bedtime stories for grown-ups that you might want to pass on at a bar between mates. And it was leaving the bar that I think the deliberation started.
0: How on earth Bubbles and the militant lesbian had to sit together and come up with an idea of how to actually start the podcast and share these much-loved tales of adventure of Zorro, a.k.a. Nick.
1: How to encapsulate a person's life in a paragraph especially when the person's character is so wonderfully colorful so we thought we'd start at the end january the 10th 2019 at his funeral I've been told on many occasions that Nick had the intelligence to be whoever he wanted to be. Often writing his own court cases, his solicitors regularly commented on how he would have made an excellent lawyer. He had an exceptional knowledge of history and worked as a guide for a few years escorting large groups of foreign tourists around stately homes and sites of historical significance for weeks at a time. He admired antiques, enjoyed politics and was always searching for the truth in the world. He would speak eloquently about war, religion, philosophy and historical icons such as Steve Biko. As soon as my dad became focused and passionate about a subject he was like a dog with a bone and was unrelenting in his pursuit of mastery and perfection. As you will come to know, he wrote his own magazine and did so more often than not throughout difficult times of chaos. He produced this magazine in a small town where there was a social stigma Even writing about the subject matter was prohibited. He was the advertising, the sales, the designer and the reporter. He wrote incredible stories of incredible journeys that most people could only dream about. Within the industry, the magazine was legendary. Each one a collector's item that people still reminisce about to this very day on social media platforms. It was labelled as the real OG magazine of the cannabis world. He accomplished that by himself, which is quite an extraordinary feat. His knowledge and passion for the subject meant that he was revered and respected in the industry. Filled full of notable characters, he would sit at the exclusive legends table, a sort of who's who of the pot scenes socialites and connoisseurs, during the High Times Cannabis Cup. Furthermore, he played a huge part in facilitating the first non-Dutch, non-American strain to win top gong at the annual competition. The legacy that he left was called cheese, and if you've ever travelled outside of England and had a... Cheesy evening, you have him to thank. Charismatic. Far from being nondescript, he definitely always left a lasting impression on people, sometimes good and sometimes bad, but ultimately, very rarely, anything in between. A few years ago, I travelled to Nepal, 10 years after my previous visit with my dad and 9 years since his. Arriving unannounced at Pilgrim's Hotel, a place of sanctuary where my dad would religiously stay. I set about trying to locate some of his old buddies, notably the Mr. TV Guide, the aspiring guide who always accompanied my dad through the country yet spent most of his time sprawled out on a sofa watching his favourite Bollywood flicks on the TV at a cost of $20 a day. Hence, my dad aptly named him Mr. TV Guide, a name that I found out he still holds with pride to this very day. Anyway, I told the receptionist that I was looking for a friend of my dad's They asked me who my dad was and I explained that he had long black hair held in a ponytail and a rolled up cigarette butt constantly pursed between his lips. Ah yes, Nick. How could we ever forget Nick? they replied. Some of my most treasured memories of him would be when he would sit and tell stories. If you caught him on a good day he could conduct a table and people would sit listening attentively. This was partly because he was extremely talkative. He would occasionally talk straight through from morning until night, but chiefly due to the fact that he was articulate and his stories were captivating, amusing and infectious. It is probably in situations such as these, whereby a lot of people first met my dad, and where you probably grew to love him. Had it been anyone else telling these anecdotes, you'd probably think it was a load of old bollocks. But it was him, he walked the walk, and you knew it was all true. He had a fantastic wit and an exemplary turn of phrase. Everyone I've spoken to since his passing has commented on how funny he was, how he would often have them in stitches, specifically with his little gems of one-liners. You could never predict what he was going to say next. Once, for his own amusement, as things often were, he warned an innocent young barmaid that I had autism so don't be alarmed if I started stacking all the pint glasses in the pub whilst frantically and cheerfully clapping to myself. Strangers, upon meeting him, could never distinguish how to read him or what to make of him. Was he being serious or was he joking? Or was he just simply nuts? Nevertheless, if you were fortunate enough to know him, you got it. I could always anticipate from the look on his face, a look where he would stare deep into someone's eyes with a slight glint in his own, his mouth closed but with the tiniest of grins that exuded an air of both arrogance and charm, that he was about to say something that was going to be fantastically offbeat or outrageous. And I'll miss that look. Speaking of his quirks and eccentricities, I thought I could provide you with a couple that stick in my mind. Dad went through a stage of stopping strangers in the street to compliment them on their dog's haircuts. It's a lovely haircut. Where did they get that done? I'm thinking about getting something like that done myself, he would say to the confused owners. When I questioned him on why he kept saying this to people, he replied, Do I? I've never realised. My personal favourite, however, would be when a few years back he came very close to being banned from Tesco's. Seeing a man with his head locked into the stocks for a charity event outside of the supermarket consequently prompted my dad to rush inside, appropriate a couple of cartons of eggs and then proceed to manically launch them at the unsuspecting man as onlookers stood by in astonishment. The man himself, unable to see, simply shouted out desperate cries for help. The situation only calmed when Joe, my dad's girlfriend, had to explain to the furious manager that my dad wasn't very well. He was on a lot of medication and had to plead with the guy to just go easy on him. I'm sure both the manager and the poor sod in the stocks won't forget my dad in a hurry either. Dad would always allude to the fact that he wasn't much different from anyone else. It's just that most other people were all the same. He was outspoken, nobody told him what to do, and in his line of work he disseminated forbidden information regardless of the risks associated in doing so. He did things on his own accord, was true to himself and always followed his heart, although later in his life that would usually arrive after hours, if not days, of anxious deliberation. Methodological and obsessive, conversations were rarely light-hearted. He was constantly immersed in the madness of the moment. As his brother David said, Nick was at his best when his back was to the wall, always resourceful, always the pragmatist and tireless in fulfilling his responsibilities to others. His stubbornness, tenacity and courage always rose to the occasion and it was these that carried him through the many adversities that life threw his way. He lived life intensely and sadly things rarely went in his favour. Having been born in a linen cupboard and being diagnosed with malaria five times before the age of six, dad was prepared from a young age to be resilient. His resilience astounded the people around him, especially the large pool of medical practitioners that attempted to care for him during the last year of his life. He needed to be in control and he never gave up. When a person's blood count is 80 or below, basically they're in trouble. Usually a person would be bedbound, on oxygen and be awaiting a blood transfusion, When my dad's dropped to 64, he drove himself to the clinic to pick up the results. Not only was his stubbornness admirable, it verged on the medically miraculous. His obsessive nature, of which keeping hold of his independence was one, meant that he didn't dance to the beat of society's conventional norms, even at the end. He planned his own funeral, got his own coffin made, and left consultants from all over the country scratching their heads. They'd never seen anyone like him before. He lived his life like a true maverick, and for that he deserves enormous respect. Adventurous Dad was fearless from a young age. As a sort of courier, he would boldly and audaciously travel through airports and go overseas, carrying varieties of packages that ranged from the substantial to the very large, Just ask the Portuguese council who thought it would be a routine idea to set a field on fire in order to clear the ground for construction purposes. Although we can all sit back and admire that fine balance between bravery and stupidity now, it did used to frustrate me when he would continually do it on family holidays though. Old habits die hard, I suppose. Through the magazine, during the times when air travel wasn't cheap nor common, the term dark tourism didn't exist, and Ross Kemp was primarily known as Grant Mitchell. He visited weed farms in Ghana, equatorial West Africa, crossed Kashmir during a time where Pakistani and Indian armies were exchanging artillery fire, had a dance with dysentery in Goa, and went to Milana on a quest to find the best sharas in the Himalayas. Furthermore, he hung out with traffickers and reported on the sex tourism trade in Gambia and Senegal. He visited the Rift Mountains in Manali, ate goat bollocks with a bunch of Bedouin gangsters and got stoned before diving with a great white shark in South Africa. Crowds of hundreds watched on captivated as he was instated as an honorary sadhu at the holy festival of Shiva, Pashupatana, by going toe-to-toe, smoke-for-smoke, with a naked, ash-smeared, high-ranking baba. He visited the tribal areas of Afghanistan where there was no policing lots of kalashnikovs and gun shops, marijuana plantations and was home to the Taliban and the heroin trade. Whilst there, he stayed in the house of people who had, over a minor altercation, just murdered eight members of their next-door neighbour's family. Under his recurrent alias of Zorro, and on an investigative trip to Unearth One, what was in this seemingly dirty and contaminated substance named soap bar, and two, who was producing it, Dad spent time in Morocco with Crazy Joe and Mr Big. Needless to say, these nicknames weren't given ironically, and it was a bit of a nail-biter, but ultimately, he managed to get the information he wanted before they arranged for him to disappear. Julie, the article proved instrumental in the soap bar price crash, and he was afterwards warned in no uncertain terms by Mr Big to never to return to Morocco. There isn't many, if any, people who could have claimed to have experienced these things. Nick, my dad, was cultured, colourful, rare and, lending a quote by his friend Kenny, was one badass motherfucker. He grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, in the shadow of the hippies and at a time where youth battled against the forces of old and evil. The verse of... Come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticise what you can't understand, was a lyric that spoke true with him. He connected with it and would often recite it to others. Essentially, he was born a hippie and could never shake that regardless of however much he struggled. It was just ingrained within him, in his heart, and he couldn't have been anything different. Dad had always been anti-establishment. When buying stamps, he would regularly notify the unassuming ladies behind the counter, pointing at a picture of the Queen's head. She is the biggest benefit fraud of them all. Not so long ago, whilst I was reorganising the stacks of paperwork littered around his room after he died, I found a Conservative Party leaflet from David Cameron, hidden in amongst the mound. Curious as to why he would have such a dreadful thing, I picked it up for further inspection, and on the back of it, it had written, returned to sender, and time to shove it up his fucking ass. Generous. Dad's first thought was always to find the good in people. His class teachers in Ottawa asserted that he would make a fine doctor. The priests at his school in Montreal suggested that he should join the clergy. Well, as we all know, it didn't quite work out that way. However. In these schools' affirmations, it must be noted that there was a common thread that even at such an early age, my dad, Nick, displayed a sensitive and caring nature that was easily observable by those around him. These qualities certainly endured throughout his lifetime. He was hugely empathetic and always supported those less fortunate. When times were hard and the universe wasn't spinning your way, he was Mr. Reliable. He would go out of his way to help others in need and you knew that he'd do the best he could for you. He would take people for meals and hand out money to friends who couldn't afford to buy their children birthday presents. He looked after people and would often let people stay at the house. He opened the doors to people such as Musa and Spike. He provided a safe place for a group of 16 year olds to hang out. He used to call us a tree-fork gang and was immensely proud of what each of us has gone on to become. He invited his friend Mark in so that he could attempt to help him kick his increasingly crippling heroin addiction. He gave a man called Danny, seemingly a stranger at the time, with a place to stay when he was homeless as a result of an ongoing custody battle with his ex. As it would transpire, Danny broke a restraining order and consequently my dad got busted just typical of his luck. Despite the cancer having already taken a tight grip on his body, he would spend most of his days looking after his mum, Ma. It would never have crossed his mind not to. Considerate and selfless, he extended gestures of kindness to people he didn't know. He would buy his doctor's children Christmas presents and attach notes telling them how cool it must be to have a superhero for a father just to put a smile on their faces. With the magazine deadline looming imminently, he instead drove Musar to Stansted Airport after his train was cancelled. Arriving at the airport just in time, Dad gave Musa a couple of hundred pounds with the instruction to go and enjoy it with your family. As Musa says, I didn't even really know him at the time. He did better for others than he did for himself. Simply, he cared. He deeply, deeply cared. Embracing the contention that regardless of whatever the universe unfolds, Nick believed there was always the possibility to make the best of things and to make things better. He wanted for other people to be happy and for those around him he made a difference when he could. With this in mind, I hope that we can be inspired to leave here today acknowledging that for what little it will cost you, a gesture of goodwill to someone not expecting it will enrich both of your souls. Dad, you'd be writing deducing from the stories you have just heard that my upbringing wasn't exactly conventional. For example, on my eighth birthday, my dad took me to a somewhat, shall we say, avant-garde festival to eat peanut butter sandwiches and hang out with a mob of fruitcakes and pie keys for the weekend. I couldn't remember asking for that. On the morning of my birthday itself, as the cold, damp mist settled on top of the ground sheet, I stuck my head out of the tent and was confronted by 200 people, noisily, marching through the field, naked, protesting for Greenpeace. As I said, it wasn't exactly conventional. Despite tales such as these, for which there are a few, he was everything a great dad should be, and more. He taught me how to ride a bike. He would carry me around on his shoulders. He would read me stories and tell me stupid jokes. He would show me magic tricks whereby the dog, Paddington, would fart out pound coins. He was there when I had nightmares. He took me to the animal shelter to play with the animals and to see our best friend, Baby, the llama. He took me horse riding. He took me to the football, even though he could never get his head around a bunch of blokes watching other blokes chasing after a pig's bladder. But... He did it anyway. He was there and he made a difference. He had my ultimate love and trust. He saved my life. Twice. We would play cowboys and Indians for hours. We would play chess, drafts, pool and Jenga. We would bake muffins. Okay, unbeknownst to me, they would secretly space cakes, but what is a kid to do? We would go on holidays to the beach. We would take long walks through forests and around hills and hollows. We would sit and watch movies such as Mrs Doubtfire, Turner and Hooch and Glory. All movies that were not only excellent but taught values dear to him such as love, compassion, honour and justice. He offered sound, fatherly advice such as drink your beer like a good boy and don't date a fat chick because you look stupid a little bit like the number 10. Although I didn't know it at the time, he gave me his last 400 quid before I left to go to China. He was always determined to pick me up, even when his health dictated he was in no fit state to drive. He fought immensely hard for me, to see me and to provide that very special father-son relationship that all children yearn for and deserve. Primarily, it was his mission to ensure that I felt loved. I did and I do, and for that I am eternally grateful. Having spoken to many different people who knew him, one thing stood unanimous in their offerings, that I was his magnus opus, the sentiments of which could be seen pencilled in his wishes. Describing where he wanted his ashes scattered, in Tintagel, the birthplace of King Arthur, he wrote, Max Please scatter some of the ashes in the area under and around Arthur's statue and then scatter a bit more up behind Arthur and onto the plateau that looks out over the sea and to the right, down the cliffs and along the coast, the plateau where Max and I sat, on the very last occasion that I walked up a hill, talking and talking and taking in the splendour of this very beautiful place. I think I will be very happy up there. What a spectacular view that was, and I shared it on that day, in the presence of King Arthur's statue high upon the hill overlooking the sea, sitting with the same little boy, known to me. sitting with the same little boy known to me at that time as Sweet Pea or simply Pea, to whom I used to read bedtime stories night after night about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. We completed a circle that afternoon, Max and I, a very important circle to me in both my heart and my mind, for the rest of my life. And how I can spend the rest of eternity, day after day, warmed by, and reliving. The wonderful memory of that incredibly special afternoon that I spent with King Arthur, and my most treasured little boy, and the link that this particular place had with bedtime stories. And that I used to read to him so long ago. Who says you can't find heaven on earth? I love you dad. So. As we approach the end of this eulogy. And as he would say. The long and short of it is. He was unique. An absolute one of a kind. Josiah, my dad's girlfriend's son, always maintained that everyone should meet Nick at least once. A statement of which I am sure you can all infer. With this in mind, us, as those who knew him well, we were the lucky ones. He wanted to leave you with a couple of messages. The first one is a famous song that he would like to share with everyone as a parting thought about how he always believed the world should be. song's imagined by John Lennon. Finally, in a way that I'm confident, you may all agree, is quintessentially him. He wanted to sign off with this message to you, his friends and his family. Fuck technology, I'm out of here.
2: (laughs) Nick was unique, one of a kind. Pilgrim's Hotel, Mr. TV Guide's Pride. Your dog has a lovely haircut. Born in a linen cupboard, malaria five times. The courier, make him disappear badass motherfucker return to sender shove it up his arse King Arthur heaven on earth Fuck technology I'm out of here
1: so if I asked you about art you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written Michelangelo you know about him. Life's works, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientations, the whole works, right? But I'll bet you you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling, seen that. If I asked you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus about your personal favourites. You may have been laid a few times, But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. And I'd ask you about war. You'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more unto the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap, watch him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I'd ask you about love. You'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. Who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that love for her, be there forever, through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand, because the doctors could see in your eyes that the words visiting hours didn't apply to you. You don't know about real loss, because it only occurs when you've loved something more than you've loved yourself, and I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. And look at you, I don't see an intelligent, confident man, I see a cocky, scared, shitless kid. But you're a genius, Will. No one denies that, no one could possibly understand the depths of you, but you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine and you ripped my fucking life apart. You're an orphan, right? You think I know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? Personally, I don't give a shit about all that, because you know what? I can't learn anything from you, I can't read in some fucking book. Unless you want to talk about you, who you are, then I'm fascinated. I'm in. But you don't want to do that, do you, Sport? You're terrified of what you might say. You'll move, Chief.
0: Right, music story for you now, Max. Kurt Cobain, you ever heard of him?
1: Yeah.
0: Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Glad glad your uh, music knowledge is on point. Member of Uh, the 27 Club. Oh, that's it, yeah. Um, so, obviously, lead singer of Nirvana, um, you know, upheld within sort of Generation X as being sort of a, a leader of teen revolution and a, an a alternative icon. Um, but did you know his um, his wife Courtney gave him the nickname Pixie Meat? No she actually came up with that <laughs> because of uh, because of Kurt's love for pixies believe it or not um and she also said he had elvish good looks i often say that about you <laughs> um, it's better than any lesbian well yeah
1: you have to be fair um
0: so obviously massive icon massive alternative hero um a song listened to and inspired thousands of grunge bands to begin and start their careers um, <laughs> is the song Smells Like Teen Spirit. And it's, you know, through this winding trail of this weird nickname Pixie Meat that I then started to look into um, the sort of the beginnings of the song Smells Like Teen Spirit. Um, and I started to find lots of different sort of account and sort of um you know stumbling my way through it i found out that it all started um after a bit of a bender um he'd been drinking with uh the lead singer or the lead band member of a a, a band called bikini kill uh, a girl called kathleen who's a very close friend of his and uh they'd been drinking all day and they'd gone out to this hill near where they lived and they were sat on the grass drinking and smoking and stuff. And as they were looking out over the city, they just sort of spotted down below them, um, this abortion center. So this is a place where teens were coming in who were in desperate need of abortion through whatever had happened in their life. And, it was actually not that at all. It was actually the complete opposite. It was actually a pro-life Christian organisation that was actually taking these desperate teenage girls and sort of making them praise the Lord and turn around the other way and skip out joyfully, except that's not what it was doing at all. It was sort of forcing them down um, the route of you know backstreet abortions. Um,
1: Which I believe is probably a better name for a band than bikini kills but
0: yeah I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll send that on twitter to kathleen and see if she uh, dms us back for that one but yeah um, it's uh it's it's just you can imagine them both sat there um and kurt was always of the oppression yes ironically he may have said um sort of certain lines in interviews but it, I think Kurt was always aware of sort of the ripple effect that he had of this sort of, you know, revolutionary icon of this, this person of the alternative views sort of thing. And, um, and most of the time he'd either be talking about drugs or talking about punk, and that's who he was. He was an alternative person. Um, and I think him and Kathleen both looked down on that abortion centre and thought, um, you know, let's do something. Uh, you know about mixing stuff up here a bit, throw throw the uh, cat amongst the pigeons, and uh, Kathleen was the pragmatic one, and she got up with the with the spray can. She went down and started scrolling on the side of the building. Um, but Kurt just grabbed, I think it was the the red can, just just the one can, and in six foot high lettering on the front of the building, just scrawled "God is King," and uh, dropped the can and walked away. Um, and they kept on drinking that night, and, uh, it got to the point where he, he was on the verge of passing out. And I think Kathleen muscled him up, up to his room in the motel, and, uh, he sort of lay on his bed there. And, uh, in, in doing so, obviously got a face full of his, his, his sweatshirt that he was wearing, and, uh, he absolutely stunk, um, and and she she automatically knew this smell and knew where it had come from and and you know, just a wry little smile came across her face and she she knew what she was going to do next she
1: she part time investigator
0: <laughs> oh she was yeah she was she was part time uh, lead singer of Bikini Kill part time private investigator that's that's officially part time graffiti artist yeah well yeah part time that as well yeah she was a, she was a woman of many traits um...
1: you could see why he liked her. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he was, you know, he was, he was into a good one there. So she grabbed a marker, um, and with him passed out on the bed. She, um, she scrawled on the motel wall. Um, Kurt smells like teen spirit. Um, had a little chuckle to herself, I imagine, and, uh, dropped the marker and off she went. So cut to the next morning, bleary eyed, Kurt awakens and, uh, it's like, oh God, what happened last night? Oh yeah, legend. Scrawled, God is king over the abortion center. And, uh, as he was thinking of that graffiti, he caught, uh, caught his eye on a little bit of graffiti on the wall of the motel. Um, and I can imagine th- there's no, there's no, uh, sort of record of, of, of his reaction there, but I can imagine him knowing the sort of ripple effect he had within, w- within that generation and the teenagers. I can imagine he turned and saw the words, Kurt smells of Teen Spirit. And he probably thought those words were absolutely deep as fuck. He probably thought, yeah, that is me. I do smell of Teen Spirit. Yeah, that's me. I'm I'm the alternative icon for the teen generation.
1: He were proper chuffed to fuck.
0: <laughs> I imagine he very much was. And I, I, I imagine he sort of made he,
1: himself a fucking <laughs> cup of Tetley tea.
0: <laughs> and fucking patting himself (laughs) on back. I imagine, even though he wasn't wearing a tie, he probably would have straightened his tie and walked down there, clipping his heels as he went down the motel (laughs) Readjusted his glasses. Yeah. Oh, I can just imagine. He absolutely bloody loved it. But the point was, it wasn't that at all. It was actually Kathleen taking the absolute piss out of him because that wry smile the night before was not... um, was not sort of anything other than misplaced, um, f- for Kurt because it was actually him being taken the piss out of because, um, Kathleen was the lead singer of Bikini Kill. And at that time, um, Kurt was actually going out with another band member. I think her name was Tony, um, of Bikini Kill. And, uh, basically she, um, uh, she bought her deodorant at the drugstore and just like a cheapy off-the-shelf brand. Um, And it was basically the girl version of Lynx Africa. So she sprayed herself with this and as Kurt spent so much time with her and was all over all the time and Kathleen obviously knew this as being in the band as well, she thought this was a fantastic time to take the piss out of him because the deodorant that Tony bought from the drugstore was called Teen Spirit. and. Kurt stunk of it, so taking the piss out of him, she scrawled on the wall. Kurt smells of teen spirit, and yeah, I don't, I, I don't know with it with it, all the stories and all of the interviews I've looked at. I don't ever know if Kurt actually knew that was the uh, the truth behind it, but it did come to uh, it did come to him asking Kathleen if he could use it. She said, "Yep, go ahead." And uh, they they began going with it. And actually, it came, the song itself came from a riff that Kurt made uh, the other band members play. And uh, they all hated it to start off with. And he made, them, he made them play it for an hour and a half over and over again. And a bit like uh, Stockholm Syndrome. They ended up uh, loving it. They slowed it down a bit and they went for it. And uh, yeah, the name Stuck smells like Team Spirit. That's where the name comes from.
1: So, this sort of icon of alternative rebellion based his most popular song on smelling like a little teenage girl. yeah, that is basically it, and uh, although
0: you can't unpick it from the lyrics itself the um actually i've I've looked through so many different sources, and um there is no one that can pin down. Even from interviews with Kurt himself, what the lyrics mean—he's exaggerated. He's—I thought you
1: were going to say what he smelled like. Well,
0: no, no. I think he smelled of girls' deodorant, of little teenage girls' deodorant. Yeah, is what what the uh, the crux of the story is. But yeah, I, he's exaggerated details. He's gone off on tangents. He's told so many different versions of it that actually no one has an idea. And I think the last parting phrase that he gave was that it doesn't matter what it means it's alternative no that's that's its thing it's it's its meaning is what it is and that's that's what he left it as i think so yeah maybe it all means that it's good to smell like a little teenage girl
1: well did you know that kurt cobain actually suffered from chronic stomach problems so actually probably just smelled like the shits
0: Maybe that's why Kathleen left in a hurry. Or maybe
1: that's why Courtney killed him.
0: (laughs) All them bloody bedsheets she went through.
1: Rumors.
2: (laughs) Pixie meets Kathleen, drinking cans on a hill. Abortion clinic not real. Kurt and Kathleen pissed. Graffiti on the wall. God is king. Kurt passed out and stinks. Stinks of teen spirit. Or does he shit the bed? Backstreet abortions. Bed shitter. Backstreet abortions. Bed shitter. Bed shitter. That's bone. And the lettering
1: is something called and Grail. So when we first spoke about content centered around stories for music, songs, whatever, this one automatically sprung to mind usually your mind would kind of swing towards some sort of uh, obvious tale of rock and roll debauchery, Uh, Led Zeppelin and the shark's head or the Thai government having to call in the military to escort Billy Idol out of some hotel, something like that, you know. Uh, But I thought I'd go with something a little different as the story sort of fits with the episode's theme, kind of carrying the torch for those that have passed, if you will.
0: You're such a morbid cunt.
1: Yeah, I know. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make it light-hearted next time. Yeah. If uh, Jerry Lee Lewis marrying his 13-year-old cousin is light-hearted, or, I
0: don't know. Hey, America, hey?
1: God bless him. <laughs> anyway, my story this week is about a geezer called Victor Deme. And uh, probably like the majority of people who have actually heard of this guy, Victor Demet, I came across him by accident and uh, he was being sampled by some French DJ. A mate of mine had it on in her car and I was instantly drawn to this guy's voice. It was incredible. Um, this French DJ, apparently it was some bloke called Synapsen. And uh, a quick Google search later and uh, I managed to pull up the original sample, which was Victor Demate John Meyer. And as soon as I watched the video, I had so many questions that I wanted to find out like, what language is this? Where the fuck does he live? Because it looks pretty grim and bleak to me. Uh, who the hell is this dude? Is he slightly deformed? Uh, basically, what's his story? Uh, so I set about putting my uh, criminology degree into action and, uh, I knew that bad boy would have to come in handy one day. All and, right. Don't show off. Uh, well, you know, it's, uh, 30 grand's worth, mate. So, uh, <laughs> you got to fucking play it out. And, uh, this is it. So yeah, Victor Demme was uh, born in Burkino Faso which is one of the, the poorest countries in the world. And uh, it's not to be confused with Bikini Kill, uh, that famous grunge brand that influenced Kurt Cobain so much.
0: Although Kathleen has apparently, allegedly, um, been uh, appointed as the leader of Burkina Faso. So I don't know if that has any ties to it.
1: Well from the sounds of it it's pretty lawless anyway so it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if Kathleen was but uh anyway it's it's sandwiched in between Marley and Ghana a nice sandwich to have ah the old Marley Marley Ghana banana yeah, I yeah like yeah, that yeah yeah yeah. <clears throat> yeah I prefer a cuban but <laughs> you know um anyway his dad was a tailor and a stylist and his mum was a popular singer in the small town in which they lived and she worked sort of singing for small events, kind of like a a wedding singer, working men's club entertainer type, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, The ones that kind of throw on a couple of sideburns and pretend they're Elvis. <laughs> you know? Although I don't
0: think- I imagine she looked very convincing with a pair of sideburns. And a oh, nice fully sure. dressed.
1: She looked fucking beautiful. Oh, she did. Anyway. This is what inspired him from an early age to to become a singer. Um, after trying to make it in the music industry, basically, he was always told that he was he was too ugly to ever make it big, and he ended up moving uh, to the Ivory Coast to work for his father in the tailor shop, and uh, he would stayed there for, for for quite some time. And uh, whilst he was there, he would sing sometimes in like a small local club or he'd even sort of front uh, an orchestra which was semi-famous and uh, again during that time he thought he had a record deal but uh, it was never released when I was researching this uh, Victor Deme didn't want to comment on the guy um, I assume that's because the guy's a wanker
0: yeah probably sounds, it, it yeah. sounds like he's
1: having a pretty tough time yeah. so far yeah. Well, it gets it gets worse, does it? Yeah, oh. and better, okay, but then all worse right. again. As all think- story, As all stories do. Anyway, in the late eighties, he moved back to Burkina Faso, right. not to be confused with Burkina. Not, no, not to be yeah. confused. We won't do that again. And he had another uh, he had another go at making it big. And uh, when he was twenty six, he had a small success, and he kind of won a couple of regional singing competitions as you do. But then things turned a little bit harder and for a long period of time, he wasn't involved in music at all. It turned out uh, to be pretty difficult and he had to resort to go back to the old sewing machine again to earn a living, sometimes singing in like a local bar. And he was forced to sing songs by other popular artists, which weren't his jam. So he's
0: he's tried to make it as his mother once did and has failed. He then got told he was too ugly and someone, some wanker screwed him over with signing a deal that actually nothing got released. And now he's hit rock bottom and has resorted back to tailoring and trying to earn a living through that
1: way. He was inspired by his mum but wanted to do better. But actually, as it turns out, the... Uh, barrier was always sort of set as you can't be anything sort of better than a wedding singer. Um, So anyway, like during this time, uh, his bad luck continued. (laughs) And uh, he was diagnosed with a disease that basically ate away at his gums. Oh, God. And he kind of figured that destiny uh, just wasn't on his side and he was about to call it quits. As you would, yeah, yeah. You would, yeah. yeah. (laughs) In that situation after that. Yeah, Yeah. this is shit. Uh, So anyway, in 2005, uh, he met a guy called Camille Louvelle, who's a Frenchie music producer. And uh, this guy created the Chapa Blues records label purely to promote Victor's music. And they set up like this sort of rudimentary improvised studio, which was kind of like basically two rooms that had been separated by a truck windscreen. And uh, Victor started to work on recording the songs that he had written all over the years. And the aim was to use a couple of uh, Camille Lavelle's, uh connections and try to distribute the album throughout Europe. So anyway, after... 30 years of triumph, good old Victor was uh, reborn. And in 2008, his self-entitled album, Victor Demme, peaked at 70-odd in the French charts. The album included the song, John Meyer. At the time, he was really and truly living the blues. He was 45, his wife had died a couple of years back and he was raising most of his kids in some shithole slum that had no water or electricity. Anyway, so off the back of that record, he finally achieved that bit of fame and recognition that he'd always wanted, but was always told that he was too ugly to gain. He released his second album in 2010, but it failed and only got to 138 in the French charts. Then in 2014, Synapson, that French fellow we were talking about earlier. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. He sampled John Mayer. The song got to number 12 in the French charts and this catapulted our mate Victor into a wider audience. After that, he held concerts in London, Berlin, Paris. His talent was being recognized. He was building up a fan base. His long-term life dream was coming true. He'd finally made it. And there was huge anticipation regarding his up-and-coming third album throughout the world music scene.
0: Oh, that sounds brilliant, and I and I wonder, coming from like the slums in Burkina Faso, what his eyes and what his mind must have felt when he looked out upon audiences in Berlin
1: and London, and thought,
0: "I've bloody made
1: it. This is it." Well, I've seen the video of him looking out the fucking window of, of this car in Burkina Faso, so I can only imagine they were much larger. They yeah. were bloody big then. Yeah. Anyway, in 2015, so a year after. Yeah. Uh, French fella, Synapsin, shot him to fame. He caught malaria and he died in his hometown in Burkina Faso. And his third album was released posthumously.
0: All oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you mean about it going down and down and up and then down again. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so,
1: when. Oh, it's bad to laugh, isn't it? But oh, is it? when I when I heard this song, when I watched that video, obviously these questions were flying through my mind. So I did a bit of research and I was getting big into the story. You know, it's almost sort of Rocky-esque, the sort of guy that came from nothing and tried, and tried and tried and tried and finally made it. And I was, you know, I was getting into it. And then suddenly it said he died of malaria. In his hometown and became a faso just that abruptly, and it stayed with me for a very long time because I just thought, "What a poor cunt!" <laughs> <laughs> and, and like,
0: oh, listening to you tell that story, it is like a Hollywood movie script.
1: Apart from they ran the out of budget. Pa- and the, the last, last page was been ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> they just ran out of pages. Well, and you've just... given it to a kid and yeah. said, make sure this story don't end well. <laughs> uh, and, then he, and, and then he died. And then he died. <laughs> uh, and then he died. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, this story is a, is a nod to, to Victor. And um, as I was saying, keeping the story alive. i take my hat off to you, sir. Yeah.
2: Cheers to Victor <laughs> Victor Deme, Burkino Faso Not Bikini Kill Mother dressed like Elvis was told he was ugly Son of a tailor became a tailor Lavelle the Savior recorded him fame back to the machine Along comes synapsum. London, Berlin, Paris. Mother dressed like Elvis, died of malaria.
1: Look at that subtle off-white colouring, the tasteful thickness of it, oh my god, it even has a watermark. That last story
0: ended a bit abruptly, didn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, so, uh, well, talking of abrupt, uh, I saw something the other day that, that amused me. And I thought that I'd share that with you. It's, uh, it's just a little quip off off the pages of of the w. h. Smith Wikipedia page, well, no less very
0: cultured of you,
1: yeah. yeah, well, that's a type of uh, material that i'm I'm reading nowadays. Mm. highbrow shit <laughs> and uh, so we win the car, and uh, I was wondering what the fuck does the w h stand for in the high street retailers? W.H. Smith's. All right. Yeah. So it turns out that it stands for Henry Walton Smith. All right. So it's quite fascinating. Isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. Fascinating. Thanks yeah, yeah. for that. And that's the end of the story. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I was scrolling through and uh, went down, and uh, obviously, you get all the subheadings, controversies. I thought I'd have a little bit of look at that, you know. What are the controversies of W.H. Smith? So, is, is it the
0: price of the uh, Maltesers as you check out?
1: You would think. Yeah. But actually, on the 19th of June, 2009, W.H. Smith had to apologise after promoting a book on seller rapist Joseph Ritzel as one of the top 50 books for dad. as a father's day gift. <laughs> Well, yeah. Now, <laughs> as, can... as a fan of their Wikipedia page, I could tell you that they've got many, many shops. Ugh. And not one of the people questioned putting that up.
0: <laughs> right here, Darren. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Just under where it says books for dad. This book here about Joseph Fritzl. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Boss says put it there.
1: <laughs> the seller rapist. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's almost as go. good as when Tesco's offer cucumbers for Valentine's Day isn't it do you ever yeah. see that special <laughs> yeah. offer 50p yeah I mean, uh, it's
0: the, I mean that's the gift that keeps on giving yeah. surely.
1: well who would have thought eh? a story yeah. about WH <laughs> bloody WH
2: one for the dads Seller rapist love books Love Cucumber, 50p. Sell a rapist, 50p.
0: Thank you for listening to the inaugural Son of Zorro podcast. You can find more content on the website www.sonofzorropodcast.com. There's artwork, photos and a link to our Spotify where you'll find a selection of uh, tracks That we've been listening to this week, as well as the tunes featured in this episode.
1: Please pass on the torch, keep the fire burning, and a la vida. A la vida.